What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Ten years ago today, the artificial intelligence created to protect us detonated a nuclear warhead in Los Angeles. This is a fight for our very existence. It's humans versus AI in the new Gareth Edwards sci-fi film, The Creator, which stars John David Washington. It's currently playing in wide release. We've got a review, plus a preview of the upcoming Chicago International Film Festival. We'll highlight some of our top under-the-radar titles. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So, Josh, that Wes Anderson short that dropped last week on Netflix, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, mm-hmm. Ray Fiennes, Dev Patel, The Batch, Benedict Cumberbatch, Ben Kingsley, ringing a bell? Yeah. Yeah, I saw it, as a matter of fact. Okay, adapted from the Roald Dahl story of the same name. Well, I've seen it too. Spoilers, it's delightful. But surprise to us all, it's not the only Wes Anderson short that appeared over the weekend. Three more emerged. Who knew? I mean, we could take the positive angle on this and say, what a great surprise, exciting. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear this. And maybe especially if it was like, a surprise, an intentional surprise release, you know, like a bonus track or something like that. No, I I think this is just a case of Netflix bungling a property that they have and not really properly getting the word out. I've heard this complaint many times before, but you know, Adam, now that they're doing this with Wes Anderson, it's personal. It's personal. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they seem to have bungled it so badly. I can only assume it's intentional. I just don't know what would be driving that intention. I can't fathom it. I know me either, but you've heard this about other releases that uh, people will just suddenly find that, wait, there's a movie starring, you know, fill in the blanks with two major stars and it just appeared on Netflix suddenly on my homepage. And mm-hmm. and that's the crazy thing. These haven't even shown up. I mean, under my own profile, where yeah, I, I was know I've say, watched. <laughs> it didn't show up on my homepage. No, it didn't show up as an immediate suggestion. So yeah, I'm going to say this was unintentional. The algorithm. It doesn't know us as well as we want it to, Josh. Apparently. AI. I mean, come on. The Swan did show up the day after Henry Sugar. Then we got the Rat Catcher the day after that. And finally, Poison, the one of the four I do still need to see. Each of those last three, just 17 minutes or so long. That means I only watched him in two parts, Josh. <laughs> yeah. While <laughs> folding like, laundry also. I mean, uh-huh. is this just like the perfect Kemp in our viewing experience? Yep. Like Henry Sugar all adapted from a Roald Dahl short story and also like Henry Sugar featuring members of that ensemble that does include Fines, Patel, Cumberbatch, and Kingsley. A few other folks show up, Richard Ayoade and Rupert Friend. We were planning to talk Henry Sugar this week, but we decided to push that back until next week so we could take in all four films and give them their due. Also, of course, give our listeners a chance to see them. Josh, it should be a fun conversation next week. Yeah. I mean, just because Netflix is going to kind of quickly sweep these under the rug doesn't mean we have to. We, we right. can give them the attention they deserve. Later on this episode, we'll preview the Chicago International Film Festival. It opens October 11th. We've got our under the radar titles. It is a great lineup this year. So stick around for that. But first, let's get to that review of the creator before AI replaces us. Did you locate the weapon? Yeah, it's just a kid. 
heaven? No. You gotta be a good person to go to heaven. Then we're the same. We can't go to heaven because you're not good. And I'm not a person. Do you have any idea what the thing is? She looks like a little girl now, but she's growing. Whoever has that kid wins the war. The creator offers what many of us have been asking for these days, Adam. A big-budget Hollywood production with an original story. Written by Chris Weitz and director Gareth Edwards, who previously collaborated on the Star Wars film Rogue One, the creator stars John David Washington as Joshua, an elite American soldier on the front lines of an ongoing war being waged against artificial intelligence and the humanoid simulants who are seeking independence. When Joshua's mission brings him into contact with a young simulant with unheard of powers, she's named Alfie and played by Madeline Yuna Voyles, he begins to question his loyalties. Even if some of that sounds familiar from other science fiction action flicks, Adam, I'd argue that much of the imagery here is original. And this is something Edwards even managed when turning his lens on very familiar material like Star Wars or, in 2014, Godzilla. Did you find enough originality here? In the images? In the storytelling? In the performances? I think we should take this occasion to check in once more on how we're feeling about John David Washington. For now, though, tell me this. Is the creator the original piece of Hollywood filmmaking we've been waiting for? It's a great question. It's the right question because, yes, while original in its non-IP origins, the easiest grenade one could lob against the creator is that it's virtually a copy of other films. <laughs> a pseudo-simulant, to use the movie's own terms. Here's a short list of titles I thought about and jotted down. I'm glad you while did this watching. work because yeah. I, I know it's necessary and I just didn't have the heart. So hit me with it. Here are the ones I jotted down. Apocalypse Now, sure. RoboCop, The Terminator, Children of Men, Avatar, Akira, Blade Runner, which I did have written down before I confirmed later. I couldn't quite remember if that line we hear, more human than human, was a direct reference to Blade Runner or not. I knew it was a movie reference wasn't 100% sure. That's Blade Runner. Star Wars, The Search for Spock. I thought a little bit at the end, actually, about silent running, too. And there's another whole subgenre of films I'm leaving out that I'll get to in a moment. I look forward to hearing what you think I might have left out, though it sounds like you didn't go through the same exercise that I did. But what one critic might deride as derivative, Josh, I'm... I'm going to defend here is purposefully and effectively invoked because for one, I never felt as if the movie was trading on these homages as if they were the point. It was more a case of, and I've read literally nothing about this movie. So perhaps it was all unintentional and I'm giving Edwards credit for something that he had zero interest in doing, but he implicitly seems to understand the role cinema has played in shaping our understanding of these enormous, unanswerable, and in their own way, never-changing existential questions, especially, of course, as they relate to technology and the mysteries of human identity. None of these movies invented these concepts or these questions, but I think you can make a case that popular culture consumed them 
and forced us to think about these questions through movies like The Terminator and its predestination paradox and its warnings of AI becoming self-aware. Edwards also understands, I think, the role cinema has played in processing our collective traumas. The invocation of these films, in a way, then is no really different than the invocation of Vietnam, <laughs> which, of course, that's that other subgenre. I know I mentioned Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now, but think about how we've culturally, collectively processed Vietnam through yeah. Vietnam movies. Which Rogue One did quite a bit as well. Exactly. And the setting for most of this movie is not by accident, I have to imagine, the jungles of Southeast Asia. Of course, it also invokes Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the dropping of the atomic bomb, 9-11, quite directly. And even at the beginning, the the newsreel footage that fills us in is in this kind of World War II style, almost. So for me, whatever influences it wears is connected to this idea of tapping into our collective consciousness on these elusive anxieties. And that's one of the ways the movie did work for me. It's inevitable the way you're describing it. And I would agree with you. I didn't make that list. I think you have the right list. Um, Certainly flickers of that went through my mind as I was watching it. But I don't think you could tackle this sort of story, which is still a ripe story to consider with, you know, each passing year and the further development of technology, it does feel fresh to us. And I don't think you could re-engage these questions without in some way evoking some of those earlier movies. Mm -hmm. That wasn't, you know, a drawback for me when it came to the creator. And overall, I liked it. I think, you know, maybe I can talk a little bit later about, you know, what I've made of Edward's films so far. I've been kind of back and forth on them. I would say this is one I would recommend. I think it works better than some other ones, uh, but I do have some reservations as well. They weren't necessarily tied to the lack of originality. And the one thing is the references, but also I'll just go back to this world building, which I think has always been a strength of his as a filmmaker, going back to his first feature, which was Monsters. Overall, pretty mixed to negative on Monsters, but I could not quibble with this vision of modern-day Mexico that he created where a NASA probe, if I'm remembering correctly, had crashed. And so this entire area around the crash had been designated a a mysterious infected area. Um, And so the main characters are a photojournalist and and a tourist who are trying to make their way through that area. But in terms of helping us to imagine what that might look like and feel like, I think of that giant wall that was erected you know, for the film or Mm -hmm. made to look like it's there between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, That is another callback. It made me think of that giant wall meant to contain King Kong that we saw in the the original classic King Kong. So there are definitely allusions there, too. But it also, to your point about processing political realities and trauma, of course, was evoking the idea of a wall, building a wall. This was a long time ago, too, right, between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, So in terms of allowing us to imagine what this world might not just look like, but feel like, sound like. What would it be like to live with underneath this spaceship, essentially, though it's not in outer space, but that the U.S. has nomad, that the U.S. has created to 
fly over, they call it New Asia, right? Is mm-hmm. what uh, I believe in the film, um, this area of Asia, and basically looking for simulants. And this is a giant craft, and it's one of the first images we get in the movie at night. So it accentuates these lasers that shoot down from the nomad and basically are trying to target potential um, simulants or other bases. And it's a beautiful, alluring mm-hmm. image that is used throughout the movie, but it's also terrifying. I mean, this is a lethally beautiful um image that Gareth Edwards gives us. And I also love, you mentioned how it's taking place um, in these jungles or forests, often islands. There's not a lot of development. And I love that juxtaposition of this hugely advanced technology floating above these pristine jungles and then those lasers coming Mm -hmm. down and just slicing them. Um, that's incredibly evocative. You mentioned the ground zero reference, and there are a few scenes back in LA where we see the crater that has been left behind by this nuclear attack launched by AI many years before. And there's a scene there where two characters are working to clean it up and they come across a simulant in a car that seems to revive And that itself is a terrifying scene, but also gets the heart of some of these questions that we're asking. Are simulants equal to human beings, but in a very cinematic, evocative way? So I think these are all elements in the creator that do make it stand apart for me as something more than reference points of earlier Mm -hmm. films considering these questions. Um, And it's the great strength of the film, honestly, for me, are the visuals and the images and the world building that Edwards manages. I'm with you on the world building, and I love that description of Nomad as lethally beautiful because it is. You're in awe of it. Even the simulants who are waiting for their death seem to be in awe of it. Yeah, Just they can't look away. Way, you can't look away, and there is this, this waiting period from the moment it acquires its target to when it drops its bombs or missiles, whatever you want to call them. There is always this inevitable waiting. And we see many times in the film, these faces as they kind of look on in horror. And it is one of those images you're, you're struck by every time you see Nomad appear on screen in talking about LA. And I mentioned that, that montage, the newsreel esque montage at the beginning, one of the touches I loved was how quickly in that montage, humanity goes from, and everything was great, <laughs> to then suddenly everything was dark and violent. It, it's just, it's it's like that. And there's something about the way it's edited and the pace of it, which takes us from this kind of serenity of the simulants and humans working together in harmony to then mm. inevitable <laughs> destruction. It's almost funny, except it's not played for a laugh at all. And I do think Edwards there, of course, is is being quite deliberate about his commentary there. Speaking of other sci-fi movies, even though I don't think this movie is in direct dialogue with this film the way it is with the other ones I mentioned, how about, and you mentioned standing out or standing apart, how about the fact that in this humans versus machines conflict it presents, there's really zero question from early on in the film 
about who, as one character says even, has more heart. It's the machines. Yeah. Contrast that with something like a movie we love, Ex Machina, Mm. which, as I read it, suggests (laughs) to be human is to focus on your own survival, no matter the costs. Machines then becoming human is quite terrifying, becoming more or human-like, because they then have that survive-at-all-cost instinct minus any weakness, minus, minus any compassion, or certainly minus any vulnerability. This movie is pretty direct when it suggests that the humans are the oppressors here. And even though we get some information later that helps explain that, I suppose, on some level. I'm going to dance around it, of course, to not give up spoilers. I also think the movie should have spent more time on this revelation, yes. just a little bit more time on this revelation. It felt it felt very rushed, as some elements of this film do in the final act, unfortunately. The movie, nevertheless, wants to make it clear who the good guys and bad guys are. And if you're going into this film thinking, one, that the good guys are America, first of all, and if you're then thinking, go go wider than that, the good guys are humans, this isn't the movie for you. So you're getting into the storytelling here, which is mm-hmm. where I do feel like the creator falls a little short. And to be clear, it's not because the Americans are the bad guys. <laughs> totally open to that, uh, that suggestion in a movie like this. Um, but it is maybe a little bo- more tension about bringing us to that point might have been helpful. I should probably note that this is written along with Edwards by Chris Weitz, who also wrote Rogue One alongside him. Um, so another collaboration here. But the central conflict is so simplified for me. The macro conflict of the humans versus the machines, as you described well, there is never any doubt. And in case we might be waffling, we get that first scene of the American military team invading a village and basically just tormenting. The villagers, yeah. right? It's a and scene right out of Platoon. It's in right Vietnam out of Platoon. Films. And it's mm-hmm. so cartoonish. And it, it, you understand, like, we get your point. We already know that these aren't the good guys. And then you get something like that. So that's the macro level. Um, but I think when it comes to this character of Joshua, the conflict is also simplified. We know what it's going to be. Is this guy going to come to believe that simulants are equal to humans, right? It's It's not a new question. As you pointed out, it's crucial to so many of those titles um, you've already mentioned. But the path to get him there is it's it's at once obvious and unnecessarily convoluted. And I think a sticking point for me is that a lot of it rests on relationships in the film that we never fully believe. We haven't mentioned Maya yet, and we probably don't want to get too much into her character, though we do meet her early on, Gemma Chan. And she's Joshua's wife. Let's let's say that. The, the movie jumps around in time a little bit. So we get some flashbacks. Um, and I think that's part of the problem, actually. A, the flashbacks are asked to do a lot of the work in establishing their relationship. I don't know if Chan and Washington have the right chemistry for that. I don't know if the scenes they're given are allowed enough space for them to build that. I have basic questions once we learn more about her about why she would have ever ended up with him 
in the first place that I couldn't quite get past. So, so that's Maya. That's who is a, you know, a pretty crucial character in the film, even though, um, she, she's not on screen all that much. And then the other character I mentioned, the much more crucial character who is on screen almost as much as Washington once they meet is Alfie. Uh, this maybe, would you say seven year old, six, seven year old, sure. something like that? Yeah. Simulant. I mean, so many questions that the movie never really answers. What are the extent of her powers? Um, why would she, let's just say Joshua comes across her when he's seeking, um, as again, the elite soldier, he's seeking the source of the AI's power and comes across Alfie. And why would she ever from that point sort of team up with him? Uh, I didn't quite get that. And here's the crucial one. What is her understanding of herself and her role in this war? Mm -hmm. Depending on the needs of a scene, those questions seem to be answered differently for me. So to go back to my note about the, you know, the central conflict here, this at the micro level never really, it kept complicating the question, but not in a way that led to tension that made me go back and forth. Like, well, maybe I'm on the side of the humans. Maybe I'm on the side of the simulants. It was always clear we were supposed to be on the side of the simulants, but never equally clear why. I was hung up on those elements. I wasn't as hung up on the elements you're describing. I think I more had an issue with, as I mentioned feeling as if there were some contrivances of the plot to try to get us to the ultimate ending that we get. And here I'm going to contradict myself. Even as I felt that, Josh, the moment when I did realize, maybe 10 minutes before it happens, exactly where this film was going and what it was going to deliver, I really liked it even more. Actually, what it what it pulls off in terms of the character of Joshua's journey, even though it was a little contrived to finally get there and see those moments realized, I I had a fairly strong emotional reaction to it, actually. So the movie worked for me when we finally got to the end and saw how all of those elements did come together. I think a part of it is is Alfie, the actress. Mm. Madeline Univoyles, that kid, man, that's all I wrote in my notes. I wrote this kid, man. <laughs> that's all I could articulate after maybe about Amazing face. halfway through the film. The face is, I don't even totally know how to describe it. The best I've come up with is if every robot that was ever created from here on out, Josh, was as sweetly and sublimely expressive as she is, there'd never be any question about whether or not simulants can be loved and treated the same as humans. We would all instantly completely give ourselves over to her instantly <laughs> because that I think is just how wonderful she is to look at. And, and she is a character who they, they imbue with this, this power to kind of stop people in their tracks and to regard her and to regard that that sense of peace that just seems to permeate every every pore that that was the experience i had with her i really did come away from this film thinking i hope i hope this actress has a very long career she would seem to have one ahead of her yeah she definitely has peace is the right word for the presence that she brings um 
again, I wish the story had built the reasoning around that. It, it's almost like they had this kid and knew what they had and were like, essentially, and it sounds like it worked for you. We just got to plop her in front of the camera and, and move mm-hmm. in close on her face and, and people will buy whatever we want them to buy. Um, I maybe needed, needed a little more story beyond that, but I do agree. She's wonderful. And we should know too, again, this goes to the special effects work here. Um, and that particular team, but these simulants, anyone who's seen the trailer has seen this, but they essentially have a cylinder at the back of their head. So if you're looking at them in profile, you see right through that cylinder to the other side. And so I love the use of this as as you're describing her face, you look at her head on and she's the cutest kid you've ever seen. Right. And then she just turns slightly. And this is incredible special effects work, as I think there is throughout this film. This is mm-hmm. this is such a clearly, cleanly, seamlessly integrated actual footage of live action and digital effects. I, I, I wish all of our action sci-fi movies could look this good. But yeah, when she turns her head, you thoroughly believe that that hole is there and it's where you just, it gives you that pause. Mm-hmm. That, that there's a, See, that's... I think that's that's what's holding me back. If that tension, the experience of that tension I had every time Alfie turned her head was weaved into the narrative as well, I think this would have been like one of the best recent sci-fi films. Hmm. And there, there's just enough of it there for me to for me to really like it. Um, but it's mostly again in those images and the visuals than it is in the story. So so you were taken by Voyles. Um how about I really do want to talk about John David Washington, their chemistry, how they were together. And then um, where is this in in terms of the performances we've gotten from him? Because I'm I'm curious in this because I have attention myself <laughs> when it comes to this performer. I've swung pretty wildly on him. And usually when that happens, it may be an issue of the material. It may be that we don't have a body of work yet to really know. It may be me. Um, but what do you think of him in this film? Well, you're doing a lot of great work there to set me up. I wish I had a take. I want to hear yours, Josh, because I'm where I've That's always... That's the problem. I wish I'm, I had one. Yeah, I'm where I've always <laughs> been on John David Washington, which is there's nothing about him that really bothers me mm. on screen. Mm-hmm. I also can't necessarily say, man, I can't wait to watch this guy. <laughs> there's mm. There's something maybe that's holding me back just a little bit, but... I also find myself, and this is a good thing ultimately, I find myself still thinking like I did back when I saw him in Black Klansman. I find myself thinking about his father the whole time. And that's fine. That's fine because you cannot shake the cadence, sometimes the voice itself, the mannerisms. There is so much of his father in him. And his father, of course, is one of our greatest ever screen actors. So he, he hasn't maybe carved that path for himself just yet. But I still think there's talent there. And there was nothing about this performance that that bothered me. Honestly, it probably is my favorite John David Washington performance to date. Okay. It probably is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he'll ever shake Denzel. Um, and, and to your point, I don't know that he needs to, but it's definitely there. And you, you think about that. Um, and, and maybe you think of, you know, Denzel Washington has been in his fair share of genre films and tends to elevate them incredibly. And maybe John David Washington isn't quite there yet because I feel similarly to you, uh, fairly neutral here. Um, that's why I'm trying to figure this out. Uh, and I do know, 
I think I've gone back and forth. You know, in Black Klansman, I just found them to be galvanizing and electric. That that's mm. probably my favorite. Quite good. Um, yeah. And then you know, I think I'm asking myself this too, is because he's been in some major films for a relatively young talent, not only working with Spike Lee there, but then, you know, getting the lead in Tenet, uh, the Christopher Nolan film, but there he definitely showed some promise as this 007 figure, but was underserved overall by that movie, I think. Um, and then in Malcolm and Marie, you know, opposite Zendaya, I thought he was really good. He was insufferable. Don't get me wrong, but he was entrancingly insufferable in a way that then when I see him in something like David O. Russell's Amsterdam, and he's almost a non-entity, I just ask myself, well, where did all of that charisma go? And you do see flashes of it here. I agree, but he's he's trying to drag it out of this character. I don't think this is a very well, maybe going back to where we started, the character of Joshua might be uh, the most borrowed figure, the most borrowed element from all those other movies than anything else. I just don't think he's fleshed out, even though we get a lot of information about mm-hmm. his backstory. Um, I, I don't know that that's enough to make this a very interesting character in the story. And he's supposed to be the hero. He's also one of these heroes that... Everywhere he goes, like we're supposed to be in on his journey, right? And and how this affects him personally, not just, again, that macro story. But everywhere he goes, he makes things worse. People suffer. Villages tend to explode. I mean, it's it's yeah. <laughs> we're only invested because the movie needs a figure at its core. And they haven't really given us, despite John David Washington's best efforts, I think, a figure that I at least could invest in as much as the movie needed me to. I think what you're saying is, and I would agree with you, that the movie wants us to be invested in whether or not he's going to be reunited with his wife. And that was not something I ever really cared about. Yeah. I did. She could. But I I still cared about the implications of him finding his wife in the grand scheme of things. Right. I think you're more invested, at least I was, in what happens to the relationship between him and Alfie. It's almost as if the Maya character after somewhat kicking off the action, if she had left the film and some of that time had been given to more scenes between Alfie and Joshua, that might, I don't know that I would have missed her to be honest with you. And that's, you know, that's no slight on Gemma Chan. I, I don't think she's given, you know, 20 lines of dialogue here. Again, she's mostly in flashbacks, so it's hard to know what she might have done with the character with more robust scenes. But um, as is, if she had not returned to the film, except for plot mechanics, I don't know it would have missed it. Well, maybe this is just how much I was taken with Boyles. But I think what struck me here more than anything were the emotional scenes between him and her, whether they were scenes that got very expressively emotional or were more subtle that that relationship that that dynamic between them is one i did start to feel that attachment to that i think the movie really wanted us to feel i think without that then we really would have been lost but but it was there and i thought it was there in the performance and i'm going to quickly go back and correct something my favorite john david washington performance is actually probably when i saw him on broadway in August Wilson's The Piano Lesson, and you want to talk about charisma. So, yeah, 
all charisma in that performance. So does that actually having seen him in that context, does that inform, like, give you more of a sense of like, are are we waiting for something like that fully on the screen yet? Um, Was Black Klansman the closest we've had? Mm. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think he's a talented actor. And I agree with you, Josh, that he probably has not met the exact perfect match in terms of material yet. Black Klansman probably was closest, actually. And hopefully he'll he'll get some more here as he goes through his career. As you noted, he's getting he's getting big swings here yes. at the plate, right, with some of these titles. So we're gonna have to further consider John David Washington in the years ahead here on Film Spotting, I think, Josh. The creator is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, or if you have a very passionate take about John David Washington, please share it with us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Ernie had been given a rifle for his birthday. He took the gun and a box of bullets and went out to see what he could kill. Outside Raymond's house, he stuck two fingers in his mouth and gave a long, shrill whistle. Raymond was Ernie's best friend. He lived four doors away. He held up the rifle over his head. Gripes, said Raymond. We can have some fun with that. The two boys set off. That's from The Swan, the second of four Wes Anderson-directed shorts, all based on Roald Dahl short stories that came to Netflix last weekend. As we noted earlier, we're going to have reviews of all four shorts on next week's show. Depending on how well your Netflix algorithm knows you, these may be easy to find or they may be almost impossible to find as they were for us on that platform. Also next week, we will have poll results. The current film spotting poll question was inspired by the October 10th, 2003 release of Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1. It has been 20 years since we were introduced to Uma Thurman's The Bride. We have talked about how we were hoping to revisit Kill Bill. We've come up with a new plan. We're going to wait until the spring of next year to do it when volume two celebrates its 20th anniversary. And then we can just wrestle with both at the same time. Yeah. I like that plan. I have not seen either of these since mm. from what I remember. Same for me. Uh, f- mixed on them. I do remember liking one better than the other. I'm going to guess it was volume one, but yeah, in a sense, this is new territory for me. So I'll look ahead to that in a couple of months. Now I'm concerned for some reason it didn't even occur to me that you might be mixed on either film. Seriously? I, I went I went for both. Yeah, I guess I should have known yeah. considering your ambivalence towards Tarantino. Tortured, tortured relationship is yeah, how I think about it. I like to just pretend that's not the reality. I love both films. I think I like number two even more than one. We'll see what happens next year. The poll question asks you, who is your favorite Tarantino actor slash collaborator? We did decide to restrict it to three films. Josh, the options are... Zoe Bell, Harvey Keitel, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Madsen, Tim Roth, Kurt Russell, or Uma Thurman. You can vote and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. And if you do catch up with the Anderson shorts and have some thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Which one did you like the most? Feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, the Film Spotting Madness 2024 shortlist is officially out. We shared some bonus content. Our September bonus show for Film Spotting family members was an episode where me, you, and Sam all talked about the titles that we thought are worthy of a top 10 seed, potentially. 
We talked about the films that are our biggest blind spots that we need to see before Madness rolls around at the end of February and early March. We also talked about some of our personal favorites, mostly movies that will make the tournament, won't be maybe top 10 or 20 seated, but movies we personally love and are kind of rooting for in the tournament. It was a fun conversation, and now comes hopefully the fun part for a lot of listeners, 96 movies on that short list. You can go to Letterboxd and check it out. See how many you have viewed. See how many you need to take the time to watch to be fully prepared to participate in Film Spotting Madness. Yeah, I think this has developed in the last couple of years as a fairly significant part of madness. You know, when we started, it was with subjects like, you know, favorite actors of the last 10 years or something like this. You you didn't necessarily have to do a lot of homework, but as we've gotten into these decades and gone further back, there are a lot of people, including the three of us who, boy, if we're going to really assess a decade, especially like the 1950s, we better catch up with some titles. That's become one of my favorite parts of madness honestly is getting that push to track down some Mm -hmm. of those titles sam though man he's way ahead of us i've noticed on letterbox i think he's knocked already two (laughs) two of his blind spots yeah off so yeah we got i gotta get going here pretty soon i feel pretty good about my number for being the 1950s these aren't films we grew up with and so some decades like the 80s and 90s. And then, of course, you get into the 2000s. And we've done those in previous years for Film Spotting Madness, where we've been doing this job. We've seen a fair number of these big films. The further back you go, and this is the case for our audience as well, the more blind spots everyone seems to have. I'm at 77%, leaves me with about 20 movies I need to see. Again, pretty good with that. And I've seen All the people, I've been gratified to see all the people who have shared on Twitter and also on Letterboxd and via email, people who've shared their number. And there's a lot of 20% out there, Josh. There's a lot of 32%, 41%. Of course, there are those few really insufferable listeners who are like, yeah, I'm at 96% or I only have two that I need to cross off. But those are few and far between. There's a lot of homework a lot of people need to do. That's why we post this list now so everyone can get a start. And this is for us what Madness is all about. It's filling in these cinematic blind spots. It's really having something that's kind of forcing you to finally do it. Movies that, for the most part, we've all always known that we've needed to see. And if that sounds intimidating, you know, if you have a lower percentage, I believe you broke down that letterbox list. That's right according to the 10 or so that are most likely to make the final 64. So there are tiers. So there are. So if you feel like, you know what, in the next couple of months, I want to watch, make sure I watch five or 10, go to that list anyway, and you'll be able to make your own list of titles, priority titles, and you can at least knock out a handful of those blind spots. That was a producer Sam suggestion to provide a little structure as opposed to just posting in alphabetical order, the 90 to 100 titles. And hopefully that will help people. If you have to prioritize, if you can't get to them all, you can at least see which ones we're singling out at this early stage as the ones that are locks to make the tournament, the ones that are virtual locks to make the tournament, and the ones that are definitely maybes right now. I'm quoting Oasis, the definitely maybes right now. Film spotting madness.com or filmspotting.net slash madness is where you can see the complete lineup. Of course, you can also find the list by following me at filmspotting over on Letterboxd. 
The second annual Refocus Film Festival celebrating the art of adaptation is coming back to Iowa City's film scene October 12th through the 15th. We've been highlighting this on a couple recent shows. We hope people in the area will come out to join us, Josh. It's free. The Film Spotting Live event, anyway, is free. We're going to have some fun talking about Werner Herzog and highlighting some of our favorite moments from some of his films. To get a free ticket, all you have to do is go to filmspotting.net slash events or refocusfilmfestival.org for more information. And the code there is Herzog, H-E-R-Z-O-G. That's what gets you your free ticket to Film Spotting Live. And then, Josh, you're going to be a busy guy that weekend. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Not only the Herzog conversation we're going to do live, that starter pack, the movies, if you're not that familiar with him, the movies that you might want to get started with, that'll be a good conversation. The previous night, so Saturday night, I'm going to introduce The Shining. I think it's a late night, 10 p.m. Sold out, I believe. What is it already? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Once once people knew you were coming. I know. I mean. Forget Kubrick. I would love to, you know, say that these were free too, but I have a higher price tag, Adam, I'm afraid. So yeah, that's great to hear. Oh man, I'm excited. I cannot wait to revisit this with a packed theater. I will be introducing it. We're going to do a little conversation beforehand talking about, well, I'm hoping to talk about The Shining as an adaptation. I'm reading the Stephen King novel right now for the first time, about halfway through it. Incredibly interesting to give that a read now after seeing The Shining umpteenth time. So hopefully we'll touch on that. This is related to my new book, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies. So I will also touch on the way I fit The Shining into that book. It's one of the crucial titles I spend a lot of time on. So yeah, I think they're giving us like maybe 15, 20 minutes before the film starts and then it is The Shining itself. Yeah, and I'm going to be, you know, in conjunction with Refocus is the Iowa City Book Festival. Kind of cool that they do both events at the same time. So Saturday morning, I'll be doing a straight up Fear Not book talk. That's Saturday morning, October 14. While I'm pushing the book, Adam, one more event I want to get out there. This is for Chicago listeners. This will be the only Chicago area book-related event that I do have on the calendar. So if you're interested in coming to talk to me about Fear Not at all, come over to Facets. They're on Fullerton Avenue in Chicago, 8 p.m., October 28th. I'll be introducing Talk to Me. That's the recent Australian possession horror film. So we're going to watch that together. And then Facets has a newly renovated cafe right there at the venue. Afterwards, I'll have a discussion of how Talk to Me fits into the book. And honestly, whatever else you want to talk about. It's a pretty intimate, casual atmosphere there. So we can go in any direction. But that's going to be October 28th, basically Halloween weekend. If you don't have plans, come see me. Let's watch Talk To Me. You can get tickets for that at facets.org. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's a brand new pairing and an interesting one. Brian Duffield's new No One Will Save You on Hulu, which unfortunately I was kind of mixed on last week, Josh. They're pairing that with a movie I'm definitely not mixed on. And I get the connection. Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin which you can see on HBO Max and VOD. You could also, of course, get it as we like to do sometimes via your local library, perhaps. Love to hear what the Next Picture Show crew has to say about those two films. Tasha, Keith, Scott, and Genevieve, they post new episodes every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. It's time now for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt 
A couple of weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Get out of here, Dewey. What are y'all doing in here? We're smoking reefer. And you don't want no part of this sh**. You're smoking reefers? Yeah, of course we are. Can't you smell it? No, Sam. I can't. Come on, Dewey. Join the party. No, Dewey. You don't want this. Get out of here. You know what? I don't want no hangover. I can't get no hangover. It doesn't give you a hangover. Well, I'll get addicted to it or something? It's not habit-forming. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I don't want to overdose on it. You can't OD on it. It's not going to make me want to have sex, is it? It makes sex even better. Sounds kind of expensive. It's the cheapest drug there is. Hmm. You don't want it. I think I kind of want it. That was John C. Riley and Tim Meadows in 2007's Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, written by Judd Apatow and Jake Kasdan, directed by Kasdan, and apparently a staple for Massacre Theater. You, you, <laughs> you belatedly realized, Adam, we've done this film three times? Yeah, yeah. well... Our first bit of feedback here from Albert Malafrance sets that up nicely. He says, I was able to get this one instantly as it may be my favorite quotable comedic exchange of the last 20 years. Although this is a parody of biopics more than music documentaries, the strongest connection here is the also hilarious Bob Dylan segment in Walk Hard with Don't Look Back making Adam's list. By the way, I recall other scenes from Walk Hard and also Some Like It Hot were done for Massacre Theater early on in my film spotting listenership. Am I now a longtime listener? Have I graduated? Yeah, I think you were already a longtime listener, Albert, but I didn't have that same response when Sam suggested Walk Hard. As far as I knew, it was the first time we'd ever done it. Turns out, the third time. <laughs> the third time in like the last 10 years. And the second time, I think, in the last two years wow. that we've done wow. Walk Hard. So Sam's apparently got a go-to list of hits. It is Jukebox, and Walk Hard is one of them. You know, we did have at one point a master list of massacre theater scenes. I, I guess some intern must have been in charge of that. And when they left, yeah, you're they, looking they just at burned him. they just burned the document. So we're we're flying <laughs> blind here. It. Yep. Here's Miriam Quenville from Quebec. One of the first movies I watched with my boyfriend when we started dating. I love the part where the father says, talking about his son's song, Hold My Hand. You know who got hands? The devil got hands. The devil got hands. There's no arguing with that. Here's Ed Savoy in Philly. Recently, I watched the Vietnam War set film Casualties of War to fill in a De Palma blind spot. I needn't have bothered because that movie is so ripe with cliche that I feel mortally certain that Ben Stiller watched it before making Tropic Thunder. Wow, speaking of casualties of massacre theater, Brian De Palma, RIP. The one consolation of the experience is that I got to see the cinematic debut of one John C. Riley, featured in your Massacre of Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Like Tropic Thunder, Walk Hard is a send-up of the genre, in this case of the rock biopic, appropriate given your look at the top five music documentaries on your show. It's also appropriate you picked a scene from Boogie Nights as the segment lead-in. Just as Casualties of War was the debut for Riley, Boogie Nights was arguably his mainstream breakout. I'm sure that's what Sam was thinking. Here's David from Elgin, Illinois. Walkhard's Dewey Cox is part warped Johnny Cash. As for the real Johnny Cash, he is given a special thanks credit at the end of Josh's pick, U2, Rattle and Hum. Also in those U2 credits is the name of Eve Hewson's father. Eve Hewson, as discussed, is the star of The New Florin Son and also Bono's daughter. Here's Tom Morris in Clinton, Tennessee. He hosts the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy podcast, and he is 
typically want to come up with some obscure tie-ins. Let's see how he did. The tie-ins include top five music documentaries. Also, as a longtime listener of the podcast, I remember Adam interviewing John C. Riley and asking him about Back to the Future and Ghostbusters, and John giving a pissed-off answer about struggling as an actor. He must have been channeling Dave Mustaine from some kind of monster. Also, Riley was recently in Winning Time on HBO, which was shockingly canceled. That show caused Will Ferrell and Adam McKay to end their partnership in Gary Sanchez Productions, similar to how the band broke up in the last waltz. I think it's exactly similar <laughs> to how the band broke up in the last waltz. And, and thank you for the memory about interviewing John C. Riley. Such a treat to interview him. And he was, he was great. And I don't, I don't remember him or think of him as being pissed off, but I do remember it being one of those times, Josh, where I just somehow completely miscalculated the vibe mm. of someone I was interviewing. Mm. And I don't even know why. I think it was because it had just come up on a recent show. And I knew he was of a certain age bracket where I just assumed he would get this question and have some fun with it. I asked him about, I asked him about 80s movies and I think I made him pick which one he thought was better, Back to the Future or Ghostbusters. I assume it was those two films because that's what Tom says it was. And he just kind of paused for a second, and you could tell, oh, that that just didn't land at all. He has he has no interest in playing along and answering that you question. Tra- yeah, you you like threw a film spotting madness bracket at him, and he's like, "What what what is yeah. this? I'm making and he he art, threw it sir. back. He I'm threw it back art. at me. Yeah, exactly. But otherwise, lovely guy. Josh Ashen Miller from L.A. also wrote in. I think this week's massacre theater is from Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. I didn't have time to confirm if I'm right, but Josh's vocal performance was the big clue. He captured perfectly John C. Riley's guy from Chicago doing a Southern accent and ended up <laughs> sounding exactly like Owen Wilson. Yeah, it. It often goes that direction, Josh. Connections that Josh noticed. One, Walk Hard is a mock music biopic, a cousin of last week's Music Docs. Two, guys from the frozen north doing southern accents is basically the band's formula. So Walk Hard connected to your discussion of the last waltz. Oh, Adam's going to have a word with you, Josh. Number three, John C. Riley was also in two Scorsese movies, Gangs of New York and The Aviator. Well done. You know, nobody pointed this out, but I really thought a very long time listener would go for this deep cut. The singer-songwriter who wrote or co-wrote most of the music in Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story is Dan Byrne. And early on in this show's history, before we had permission from anybody to play music on this show, which we used to do in our breaks, I would feature repeatedly the music of someone who was one of my favorite artists. I still love his music, but one of my favorite artists who I felt was overlooked and underappreciated, Dan Byrne. And I played Dan Byrne all the time, the first year, two years of this show. And he does have that direct tie to walk hard, but no one pulled it out, Josh. So I'm doing it now. Albert, if you had said that, you would have graduated. Yeah. Where's that Tom Morris, the good, the bad, and the nerdy. You didn't remember that one, did you? Reach into the hat, Josh, and pick out this week's winner. Brett Eicher from Boulder, Colorado. Is Brett someone you met? When I was just, my mind was last. just circling from, I'm not pulling the name. So I apologize, Brett, if you've come to one of the annual meetups in Boulder, if you haven't, you should pretty sure I'm going to be back there next April. If, if he hasn't, he owes you an apology. <laughs> exactly. Congratulations, Brett. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. You can claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. You can claim your very own film spotting tote bag, or if you're not already a film spotting family member, we will give you a trial membership and you can consume 
the film spotting bonus content and dip in to the archive. What happened to the canola line? You're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his canola. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. Time for another edition of Massacre Theater. This one, Josh, I'm guessing we don't need to give any clues about? I mean, the subject matter will be obvious. Yes. But as you pointed out in our creator review, many films have been made about this subject. So I don't know. I I guess, no, the clue I was just thinking about, the person I'm going to be, Mm -hmm. the two most remembered performances that this actor gave creepy in very different ways. And the last distinction among them, I won't say because that would give it away. (laughs) Okay. We will have to hear what that distinction is in a couple weeks. When we announce our winner, we're going to give this a shot. It's going to require some terrible accent work by me. And it's Mm going to involve you having to channel your inner 10 year old or so. Well, now you just gave away the clue. That's what I was going to. I guess I guess I did. But Josh, I mean, your first line is going to give that away. Good point. Good point. (laughs) Hardly a spoiler. Or this would be a really weird movie, even weirder than it is. Yes, it would be. Okay. So I started off. You're going to give me the action. And action. They hate us, you know, the humans. They'll stop at nothing. My mommy doesn't hate me because I'm special and unique. Because there's never been anyone like me before, ever. Mommy loves Martin because he's real. And when I am real, mommy's going to read to me and tuck me in my bed and sing to me and listen to what I say. And she will cuddle with me and tell me every day, a hundred times a day that she loves me. She loves what you do for her. As my customers love what it is I do for them. But she does not love you. She cannot love you. And (laughs) scene. Now, now were you... Worried that I gave too many clues, and so you just thought you were going to veer all over the road with the accent. How and dare leave you? People completely discombobulated. How Was dare that Dracula you? we got at the end? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. He gets very dramatic. He whispers quite wow. a bit. The deadline is Monday, October 16th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries. There's going to be so many, and we'll announce it. In a couple of weeks. In Cabrini Green, there's only one rule on the playground. It don't matter how old you are, how much money you got, how big or tall, or small. All that matters is if you can jump. That's a clip from a teaser trailer for We Grown Now from director Minhal Beg. The film opens the 59th annual Chicago International Film Festival on Wednesday, October 11th. Chicagoans and students of Chicago geography will recognize Cabrini Green as a neighborhood on Chicago's near north side, formerly the site of some of the most notorious high-rise housing projects in the country. Beg is a Chicago native and sets her film in 1992 prior to the demolition of those high rises. Her subjects are two young boys coming of age in Cabrini Green. And Josh, for this preview, we're going to focus on what we're calling some under the radar films, more like We Grow Now, even though it is the opening night film. But I think we do have to acknowledge 
some of the more prominent titles that are playing the fest. It is all the way around a very impressive lineup this year. You can see, for example, the new Todd Haynes, May, December. You can see the new Miyazaki, the boy and the heron, the new Fincher, the killer, the new Alexander Payne, the holdovers. Those are just some of the special presentations. One of them as well is the new Jeff Nichols, the bike riders, which closes the festival that stars Tom Hardy, Michael Shannon also is in that film and Austin Butler. And I just happened to see the trailer for the bike riders for the first time prior to the creator. Yeah, me too. Here's what I have to to say about the trailer for the bike riders that that trailer opens with Jodie Comer's voiceover or she's talking to someone. She becomes his love interest, Austin Butler's love interest in the film. And she's describing what she felt the first time she saw him and met him and how she basically just gave up her life to ride on the back of the motorcycle with him. And I knew what she was saying. When I saw Austin Butler in the bike riders, I was like, I'm ready to give up my life and get on the back of the motorcycle with him. That guy is a, the way Jeff Nichols shoots him too in that trailer, that guy is a capital M movie star. Well, and, and you saw Elvis. I mean, that, you know, right. that that's, it was all there. Those hips, man. I guess, I guess I like the scruffier Austin Butler we get here. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. No, no lace shirts here, but leather no. jackets. Yes. Well, I had a reaction to that trailer too. I'm very intrigued to see how the Jodie Comer character is used because, and this is not a slight on the film, maybe it's playing with these, you know, earlier biker movies, but Austin Butler's character, Tom Hardy's character, I feel like I knew those guys within (laughs) 10 seconds, who they are, who they're going to be at the end of the movie. Jodie Comer was like just a very unique presence in the trailer alone. And if the movie is going to filter a lot of those iconic older film characters through her character's perspective, yeah, that could be something that could be something pretty interesting. But we're, we're far afield now from from the other films, because you mentioned a lot of these major filmmakers who are there. And I just want to add a few other names to that list. Nuri Bilga Jalan will be mm-hmm. there with About Dry Grasses, Aki Kurosmaki. Fallen Leaves, that's a filmmaker we spent some time on when we did our Nordic Cinema Marathon. Adam Corrieta seems to have a film every year at at the Chicago International Film Festival. This year, it's Monster. And yeah, I think you mentioned, oh, did you mention Vim Vendors with Perfect Days? I didn't. He has two films there, actually. Yeah, there's a a, a documentary as well, well. right? Yeah. So, I mean, I know they always get some of these major filmmakers at the Chicago Fest, but I, I think in my memory, this has to be the most packed lineup of name mm-hmm. international directors I've seen in quite some time. I agree. Before we get into our top five, then I do have something I want to share with the audience. I have to disclose something, Josh, which is that over, well, really just the past few months, I've had the pleasure of actually working with the fine folks, Mimi and Vivian, who I've had a chance to get to know over the years of covering the festival. I've had a chance to work with them more closely. I'm actually doing, because I don't have enough going on in my life, I'm actually doing some marketing consulting and content consulting for the film festival. And I am disclosing that despite the fact that this is the exact same Chicago International Film Fest preview that we've done on the show since 2005. Nothing's changing about that. I think both of us, fair to say, hope 
they sell out every single film of the fest because it means more people are coming out to the cinema and watching some great films and seeing the work of great and interesting filmmakers. The Chicago Film Festival, of course, part of Cinema Chicago, a nonprofit entity. I'm really happy to be offering some recommendations to them. And I do hope people check out the fest. Yeah, the only change has been that, you know, you you gave me a list of five titles that I had to talk about. You had I was, to talk I was about. not allowed to, to veer from that at all. That was supposed to stay between us, Josh. <laughs> Let's hear one of your picks. What do you have? Yeah, so We Grown Now came on my radar. We heard a little bit from it um, back in August, I think, because Michael Phillips, our friend from the Chicago Tribune, he got a look at it at that point and pretty much raved about it. I, I know he said, I think I saw this come across social media, a new Chicago classic, he asked. And uh, that sounds pretty exciting to me. Uh, this is, as we mentioned, directed by Chicagoan Minhal Bag. It's her third feature, actually. And uh, we gave sort of a sense of what the story is all about. The other thing I'll add here is that Journey Smollett plays the mother of one of the boys. So that's promising as well. This is going to be a case of one screening, opening night only. So that's 7 p.m. October 11. I did check today, though, on recording day, Adam, and tickets were still available. So if you want to get in on We Grown Now, you're intrigued and get there for opening night. Check it out when you hear this, and there might be a chance that you can still snag a ticket. I want to thank you, Josh, for getting us started here with this Chicago Film Festival preview by taking, I think, three of my choices. Apparently, apparently, oh, no. what, apparently what we thought might constitute under-the-radar titles oh, boy. differs a little bit. I basically just excluded anything that was a special presentation, and I didn't list all of them there, but I listed most of them. I still feel as if filmmakers like Jay Lon and Karasmaki, even yeah, the vendors it. to some extent are call them out are are kind of under the radar. I'm assuming there are some tickets left for most of these films, but I actually don't know. I'm still going to go in a different direction. I'm going to give you some other titles here. I think I've got enough on my list that I can play with. My first one, I'd be shocked if it wasn't on your list and it's certainly a big name director, Steve McQueen. Yeah. Steve McQueen has a documentary at the fest that just sounds fascinating. It is in Dutch and in English, and it's a movie described this way from the streets of Amsterdam. McQueen creates two interlocking portraits, a vivid journey through the last years of pandemic and protest and a door-to-door -door excavation of the Nazi occupation that still haunts his adopted city. Two interlocking portraits. Think about that. He's got this modern look at the Netherlands and this incredible city that is Amsterdam, but also wants to wrestle with the past and somehow juxtapose those events against the Nazi occupation and its lingering effects. And I'll be honest, despite my Dutch heritage or Kempenar originating from the Netherlands, that's something I'm aware of, but don't know anything about. And in Amsterdam, back in January for the first time in my life, granted, I was only there for a few days and it's not as if you sign up for the Nazi occupation walking tour of Amsterdam, Josh. But that was something that I didn't come across in any way or think about in my time there. And if there was a filmmaker I trust to give this 
an interesting visual aesthetic potentially, but also give it that incisive kind of exploration that the material sounds like it deserves. McQueen is definitely a filmmaker at the top of that list. Yeah, he was on my list for major filmmakers whose work was going to be at the fest. So I'm I'm glad I didn't rattle off his name when I was going on and on there so I could give you space to highlight this film because uh, it's definitely one of the more intriguing ones. All right. So at number four, I went with a film called Club Zero. It's October. It's the time for horror. You might as well incorporate that into your Chicago International Film Festival experience as well. This one comes from Austrian director Jessica Hausner, new to me, but many feature credits in her filmography. If you look her up, it does have a star name anchoring Club Zero, Mia Vasakovska. She plays a teacher who encourages her students to stop eating. And in the Chicago International Film Festival program, it's described as a mannered blend of dry satire and gross out body horror. So, yeah. That sounds right up my alley. I'll go for that. So Club Zero, if you want that horror kick as well, is going to be shown twice at the fest, 8 p.m. October 13 and 2.15 p.m. October 14. Next for me is a filmmaker who I'm sure you thought of as one of the more prominent names at the fest, but this film isn't one that I've heard a lot of buzz about yet. And he's still a filmmaker that's new to me, even after the the jaw-dropping achievement that was and the acclaim that surrounded his last film, which was Drive My Car in 2021. The director is Reisuke Hamaguchi, the Japanese director. He's got a new one in the international competition called Evil Does Not Exist. It's categorized as an eco-thriller set in a tranquil village that is threatened when a Tokyo company announces plans for a glamping site for urbanites. So based on that description, seems like a film that will be quite different than the the very thoughtful and decidedly non-pointedly satirical <laughs> Drive My Car. This is a film that seems to have more of an agenda for Hamaguchi, but after that that last film, he's one of those filmmakers who whatever he does next, I'm going to want to go see. Yeah, Drive My Car was my first introduction to him as well, and was I just loved it. So combine that with the subject matter in this narrative, definitely a potential highlight of the fest. All right, I have for my next pick a film called Bunnell and Adama, and this one might not have jumped out at me if not for the African Cinema Marathon that we just completed, Adam, here in the show. This is a co-production of Senegal, France, and Mali. It's from director Ramata Toulaisi. And here's the description. Rebellious young lovers challenge tradition in this mesmerizing and emotionally charged romantic drama tinged with magical realism. So I'm sure I read that and already you're thinking, Adam, of Tuki Buki in particular. That was the uh, the 73 feature we watched from Senegalese writer-director Jabril Bambetti. You know, really, though, we encountered magical realism in a couple of the other films in that marathon. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be incredibly intriguing. Those were mostly films from decades past, not entirely, but mostly. But to see a 2023 or perhaps, you know, made last year film, Badel and Adama, that is 
working somewhat in the same register, but within a contemporary setting. So Benel and Adama is going to be shown twice as well, 5.30 p.m. October 18 and 5.30 p.m. October 19. If you do hear us listing all these titles and you want to make sure you get them down on paper, well, you can just go to our website, filmspotting.net, click on lists. We will have all these titles there and we will link to more information about the showtimes at the fest. And Josh, great transition. I'm going to see your African cinema marathon inspired pick with this one, a movie that's part of the After Dark program at the fest. It's called Raging Grace. It's from a director named Paris Zarcia. comes from the UK and the genres are listed as horror, mystery, and social commentary, plus women-centered. It's a bloody horror film, a gothic horror film about a Filipina worker and her daughter who confront the shocking colonialist legacy of a wealthy English family. And if if we aren't primed for that after the marathon, then I, I don't know what we're ready for. That's one that stood out to me just because I'm now interested really in this this subgenre, if you will, of these films that are still dealing with the legacy of colonialism that obviously affects so many different countries and the way that we've seen a lot of these recent films have used the horror genre to tease out these legacies, to tease out the anxieties and the tensions that still exist so many decades later. I typically am one who shies away from the films playing as part of the After Dark selections, but this is one I feel like I could probably handle and want to see very badly, Josh. Definitely caught my eye, and yeah, sounds sounds pretty wild. My number two pick is All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt. So this is a title, a lot of these under-the-radar ones on my list, first I heard of them. We're starting to do research for for the festival, but this one got on my radar early on in the year somehow, and I wish I could remember probably a critic I follow who maybe saw it at a fest. Maybe it was even Sundance. I'm not entirely sure if it played there, but it did look right away like one, maybe Sam flagged it, that could be a potential golden brick candidate. This is our annual award for adventurous and underseen films from up-and-coming filmmakers. The director here is Raven Jackson. It is her first feature, and the festival guide describes it this way, a lyrical decade-spanning exploration across a woman's life in Mississippi, sumptuously shot on 35-millimeter film with evocative sound design and elliptical editing, unfolds like a dream, skipping around in time and seizing on key moments in its protagonist's existence from infancy to adulthood. So you can see from that some of the qualities that do you know, raise its hand and say, golden brick consideration here. Uh, So I've been meaning to catch this throughout the year, and thankfully it will be playing at the Chicago Fest twice, actually, 7.45 p.m. October 18, and then 7 p.m. on October 19. You know, by giving away some of my choices here, Josh, you've so discombobulated me, I only just now realized that I've basically gone in the wrong order. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I've been I've been giving my number one and two and three and and now have my four and five when I meant to do it the other way around. So with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two picks here that are classic Adam picks. One from a director who is very well known in international cinema circles, and one who I am not familiar with. The one who I'm not familiar with is Radu Jude, 
This is a Romanian film, a co-production with Luxembourg and France and Croatia. And it's a comedy that also, of course, is going to have some socio-political commentary to it. But it's a movie about making movies. It's one that features a production assistant who casts actors for a workplace safety video. Okay, I'm interested. And you know what I'm also interested in? The latest Hong Sang-soo film. The Korean filmmaker who is obsessed with telling stories about storytellers and who is one of those filmmakers who I still have only really skimmed the surface of his work. He's so prolific and he finds ways to continue to make variations on this theme, making films about filmmakers. The description of In Water is three friends wander Jeju Island in search of inspiration for a film and this formally bold meditation on the enigmatic nature of the creative process. Films that are about the enigmatic nature of the creative process, you know that, that that's my sweet spot, Josh. So those are two films about filmmaking, even though one is is coming at it very differently than Hong Sang Su, a film that is described as being a satire of capitalism in the digital age. That movie, I don't think I've even said the title yet, Do Not Expect Too Much from the End of the World, the best title there in the fest. Those are my two picks to round out my top five. Do not expect too much from the end of the world and in water. Hong Sang-soo, another major filmmaker being yep. represented this year. All right, we're down to my my number one pick, and it is Bike Vessel. And I hope I get to go to this one, but it's going to kind of be up to my dad. Actually, I did offer, you know, you run out of birthday ideas, Adam, for parents. And, and, and it's, uh, I thought this year, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to take them to a Sox game again. I don't know about Bulls tickets. I don't know. How about I offer, I'll take you to a Chicago International Film Festival screening, take you out for dinner as well. And I think I gave him three options, but I think this is the one I hope he chooses. This is basically about, it's a documentary and it's about a father-son bike trip from St. Louis to Chicago from documentarian Eric Seals. Uh, The Fest describes it as a stirring documentary that also takes a hard look at health disparities in the black community. And I knew this would intrigue my dad with the Chicago connection, the social commentary, but also because when I graduated from eighth grade to help me, you know, take the next step to become a man, my dad decided (laughs) we should take we should take a bike trip together from Chicago to Milwaukee. Did we train for this bike trip? Did we put a lot of preparation into it. Not that I remember. I think it was more like you graduated, let's get on our bikes and go. I think we did buy some of those really tight pants and appropriate helmets. That <laughs> that, that I know we did. Uh, we made it though. The good news is we made it. It was definitely a memory. And so it should be fun to relive some of those if I can go with him to Bike Vessel. This is going to be showing a couple of times, 5 p.m. October 14, 12.45 p.m. October 21. And then This is kind of fun. There's going to be a free showing on the South Side in Hamilton Park. That's 6.30 p.m. October 20 with director Eric Seals in attendance. So that's three chances to see Bike Vessel if it sounds good to you. 59th annual Chicago International Film Festival begins October 11th. It runs through the 22nd. More info at chicagofilmfestival.com. Once again, you can find all of our under-the-radar picks over at our website, filmspotting.net slash lists. Josh, that's our show. 
If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, we're at Film Spotting and at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking way ahead to next year's anticipated revisit of Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2. We thought about doing Volume 1 now, but we're going to push that ahead. We still want to know from you, though. Name your favorite Tarantino actor slash collaborator who appeared in a minimum of three films. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as five bucks a month. You can listen to the show early and ad free. You get a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows or access to the entire Film Spotting archive. I don't know how well this is going to sell the archive. Some past Gareth Edwards discussions in the archives, Josh. A not-so-glowing review of Rogue One. That was on episode 615, along with our favorite performances of 2016. His Godzilla, which I think I kind of liked. That was reviewed yeah, on episode that's a good four. One. Yeah, it's fine. It was reviewed on episode 491, along with what is actually one of my favorite top fives, the top five movie tattoos Have you gotten that yours we would yet? get. It's funny you ask, Josh, because I think about it at least once a week. Oh, wow. I think about it at least once a week and have for the past few years, and it's it's coming. I haven't set a date yet, but it, I'm getting it. My number one movie tattoo on that list is going to be on my body here at some point soon. I'm going to get a couple Moscow mules into you when I come yeah. to Iowa City, and we'll get that done. Hey, that would be a night to remember. It might take more than a few Moscow mules, though. <laughs> it might take like an entire bottle of vodka to get me. To we can get do that. There. We can do that. We could also go back to John David Washington and his first appearance on Film Spotting 693. We talked about and very positively recommended Black Klansman and did a fun top five, top five Spike Lee shots. Yeah. That's filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, is viral New Yorker short story a thing? Apparently it is. Cat Person is out, the film adaptation of the 2017 story about a college-age woman's relationship with a 20-something man. I assume a cat is involved somehow. Royal Hotel, a new one from Kitty Green, who made The Assistant and casting John Bonet. This stars Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick as friends who take work in a remote, male-dominated town in Australia when they run out of money on a backpacking trip. I really want to see that, and I really want to see She Came to Me, the new one from director Rebecca Miller, who made Maggie's Plan a few years back, The Ballad of Jack and Rose, which was talked about on the show. Rebecca Miller interviewed on Film Spotting back in the day for The Ballad of Jack and Rose. This one stars Peter Dinklage, Marissa Tomei, and Anne Hathaway. And then a film that I talked about in our recent movie preview looking ahead to the fall one of my questions was about pedro almodovar's strange way of life this stars ethan hawk and pedro pascal it's a 32 minute short that's being paired theatrically with almodovar's 2020 short the human voice that stars tilda swinton there's also a 30 minute pre-recorded conversation with almodovar so it justifies a night out at the movie theater josh if seeing ethan hawk and pedro pascal in this almodovar western on the big screen wasn't enough for you. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen the human voice. So me, that sounds like a way to take care of all that in wide release. You could see the exorcist believer directed by David Gordon green. You could also see foe. This is another film I asked about in our fall preview. Sir Ronan 
and Paul Meskel are uneasily married in a near future that sends Meskel to work in space. That's directed by Garth Davis, adapted from the book by Ian Reed, who wrote, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Streaming, you can see The Kane Mutiny Court Martial. This is the final film from the late William Friedkin. It's adapted from the Herman Wouk novel that Wouk later adapted into a long-running and often-revived play. Kiefer Sutherland's in it, Jason Clark, the late Lance Reddick as well. That's on Showtime. But as much as I want to get to some of those films, Josh, we're not talking about them next week because Wes Anderson has four, count them four, short movies on Netflix. We're going to dive in. Cannot wait. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.